Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. We're into the gentler political season, so we're doing something a little different. Over the summer, I'm sitting down with some interesting political figures who I think will be shaping the political weather over the rest of the year. Some of them you might be familiar with, others possibly not. But I'm sure you'll be absolutely familiar with our second guest, Jacob Rees-Mogg, the Conservative MP for North East Somerset. Following a successful career in finance, he arrived in the House of Commons in 2010 after flipping his constituency in the West Country from Labour. After spending several years learning his craft on select committees and the back benches, he rose to prominence as an indefatigable advocate of Brexit. Earlier this year, he became head of the Influential European Research Group, or ERG, of Brexit-backing MPs. More recently, he's become one of the most ardent critics of the Prime Minister's Chequers compromise strategy for exiting the EU. Jacob, thank you for finding time to speak to the FT. We're down in your lovely Somerset house. Thank you for having us down here. You've recently returned from New York, where you had a brush bite on the street with a boxer, Colin McGuinn, that became a bit of a social media meme. Were you aware of what happened when you were walking down the street? Well, I was going back to the hotel I was staying in. It turned out that we were both staying in the same hotel and there were some followers of his outside. And the doorman explained to me that he was a fighter. And I didn't know whether that meant he brawled publicly in the streets or whether he did it in a professional capacity. And I subsequently discovered he did so very successfully in a professional capacity. It struck me as one of those very bizarre things that does just happen on the streets of New York. It's such a colourful city full of so many different characters. What did you find the mood in America at the moment? Because obviously we read a lot about it through the Trump presidency. New York is one of those places where Mr Trump is probably not particularly popular. That seems fair enough. I was there on holiday. I wasn't really talking to people much about politics as a specific activity. And I was doing touristy things like going up the top of the Empire State Building. So I wouldn't want to suggest that after a couple of days in New York City, I had taken the temperature of political life in in New York. But people I spoke to were by and large not admirers of Donald Trump. But then their taxes have gone up if they live in New York. Indeed. But on the other hand, again, the economy keeps on growing and jobs keep coming back. And Mr. Trump's very much doing what he says he's going to do, which, you know, people in New York not like it, but people elsewhere in the country seem to. Well, it's very interesting because I said their taxes have gone up if they live in New York. Uh, Donald Trump's tax cuts stopped state taxes being tax deductible from federal taxes. So this meant that if you live in a high-tax state, which tends to be Democrats, say California or New York, your taxes have gone up if you're a high earner. Whereas if you live in the rest of the country, by and large, your taxes have gone down. And that's given a huge fillip to the US economy. Now, let's move to some things closer to home here. It's been quite a turbulent six months in British politics. What have been the highs and lows for you in 2018? Well, 
as time has gone on, we've seen more of what the government plans for Brexit. Though the Chequers plan is a definite low, it's deeply unsatisfactory and basically means that we wouldn't be leaving. We would still be subject de facto to the European Court and we would be a rule taker from the European Union. The common rule book is not a common rule book, it's the Acquis Communitaire. And that's a definite low, it's deeply unsatisfactory. But you quite like the Mansion House speech, which was back in March, where Mrs May was talking more about mutual recognition as opposed to taking EU laws as they currently stand. The Mansion House speech seemed to me a compromise that everybody could live with. At the time it was made, both Nicky Morgan and I if I remember correctly, were sympathetic to it. And that seemed to me a good and unifying approach by the Prime Minister. There were inevitably bits of the Mansion House speech that I would not have chosen, but as a broad compromise, it was satisfactory. Chequers tore up Mansion House. The Prime Minister referred to it as an evolution, but it was one of her rather big U-turns. Well, folks that I've spoken to in Downing Street essentially said that the EU wasn't interested in negotiating the Mansion House approach. They'd spent three, four months trying to get them interested in the mutual recognition and hadn't got anywhere. So that was why they felt they had to start again with something different. I think you're totally right. It was tearing up Mansion House. This is so craven weak and feeble. When you're in a negotiation that one side disagrees with you, it's not a reason to give up. It's a reason to point out the benefits they are getting from what you are offering them. We're offering the European Union £39 billion. We expect something in return. It is impossible to imagine Margaret Thatcher having got the rebate on the British contributions to the European Union or European Economic Community, as it then was, if she had behaved in such a feeble fashion. And that Downing Street should say that is an indication of its failure, not of its success. What particular element of the Chequers proposal did you find most disagreeable? Because people who have been supporting this say, well, look, yes, it is a compromise, but it's giving us the ability to diverge for 80% of the economy. It ends free movement of people. So there are some things that might appeal to your sensibilities. We can't be sure it ends free movement of people, that it's got some very weak language around that. About labour mobility. And may indicate special treatment for the European Union, which is quite hard to justify. But crucially, on the issue of the common rule book, the Acqui Communitaire, we would continue to be a rule taker and we would have no say over those rules and no vote over those rules. And those rules would be ultimately judged by the European Court of Justice. So we would remain controlled in manufacture of goods and in agri-foods subject to the European Union without any say. And that makes future trade deals with other countries extremely difficult. And that was quite clear from Donald Trump's comments on the way over to the United Kingdom for his visit. And it's not Brexit. The whole point of leaving the European Union is that we're free to make our own rules, not that we are a vassal state of the European Union. I think it was on your Instagram that you referred to the red lines becoming pinker all the time. And Mrs May began with this definition of Brexit means Brexit. We're going to leave the EU, leave all the institutions of that. Do you essentially think that there can be a form of Brexit apart from the WTO option that can still meet that? Well, I think there are options. I think a Candor-style free trade agreement is essentially what is needed. That's your preferable option? That would be the best option. It's what the EU offered at an earlier stage. 
And bear in mind that 96% of goods coming through Southampton are cleared in six seconds. So trading on a WTO basis does not mean long delays and long queues. Those would only arise if the EU insisted on a punishment Brexit and would come from the other side of the channel. But they they might well do that. You know, everything people have thought about the EU and how it operates has been proven by these negotiations. Well, that's a very interesting suggestion that you've made, and I'm fascinated that somebody representing the Financial Times should put it that way, because the Financial Times is a great advocate of the European Union and us being a vassal state. And you're basically saying that the EU is such an iniquitous organisation that if you leave it, kneecaps you. Now, that seems to me to be a mafia-style approach. And if you're accusing the EU of being like the mafia, then it's an organisation you should leave sooner rather than later. I, tend I think to a rules-based th- community is the way that other people would put that to well, say... Well, you were saying they'd want a punishment Brexit. I'm saying that they may put up barriers if we become right. a third country overnight. But they would be in breach of other international obligations if they added delays to goods coming in from the UK that they don't apply to goods coming in under WTO rules from other countries. So if we're talking about a punishment Brexit then the EU is a really pretty dreadful organisation and the sooner we're out of it, the better. So that just But your view's always been that. That just encourages us to leave. I don't actually think that sensible nation-states will want to harm their own economies or to damage harshly a neighbour with whom they have so many interests in common. It would be against their own interests and it would be against the spirit of international relations. But I think the people who are threatening us with a punishment Brexit, the sort of project fear approach, are indicating that the EU, as they understand it, is an even worse organisation than I think it is. So this idea of a no-deal Brexit, as some people have called it, WTO Brexit, whatever your favourite term is, do you think that's now the most likely outcome? Well, I think a WTO Brexit is a good Brexit. It's a clear Brexit. We're under control of our laws, our money and our borders on day one. It will give us an opportunity to get on with domestic policy faster rather than all the government's effort being taken up with Brexit, which has had a knock-on effect on other policy areas. And we do almost 60% of our trade with the rest of the world on WTO or similar terms. And we do that very successfully. That bit of our trade has been growing much faster than our trade with the European Union. And interestingly, since the single market was created, EU trade with the US has grown faster than UK trade with the European Union. So being in the single market hasn't allowed us to grow any faster. Indeed, has seen us grow more slowly in our trade with the EU than non-single market countries have managed. What about disruption, though? Because there's a general sense that if we do have that transition overnight with no transitional period after leaving the EU, there may be some disruption on borders and you can depend who you listen to about how great that would be. Does that concern you at all? Well, there are two types of disruption. One is under our control and there's no need for any disruption there. That is to say, goods and people coming into the UK can carry on until we are ready to have new systems in place. So you would essentially just leave the borders as they are, leave everything as it is? Goods coming in from the EU on the 30th of March next year are going to be just as safe as goods coming in from the EU on the 29th of March. And we can introduce new queues at Heathrow at our convenience. That's a matter for us to decide as a sovereign nation. So the question is, will the EU decide to delay the return journey. And that is, of course, a possibility. If the 
very appalling EU that you were suggesting earlier is a reality, whereas I think that the EU will behave more sensibly. I think coming back to that point, the essential argument is that if Britain leaves overnight, it becomes a third country. Yes. And the EU would do things that it does to third countries, which is those which kind is of... Which trade with them extremely effectively and allow their visitors to go in and have a system of visa waiver for the United States so American citizens don't need visas going into the EU. And it does an enormous amount of trade with the US, with Japan, with China. What is the problem? Being a third country is great. It's independence. It's liberty. And it's not being shackled to the failing... European Union's economic model that has done such damage to many of the countries of the European Union, and particularly the southern European states. What do you feel, though, about the preparations from the British government side, that we've heard bits and bobs coming out over August about things they're doing to prepare for a potential no-deal WTO Brexit? Do you think enough has been done on the UK side? Well, the challenge here is to the competence of the government that if the government is competent, which I hope and assume it is, because you would expect Conservative governments to be competent, then it will be ready for a WTO departure from the European Union. Now, there is some element of Project Fear coming along with the WTO. Or the Millennium Bug, as some people have compared well, I, it to. I think it's a very good comparison, actually. It's been used by lots of people over quite a long time, and that type of fear about something that is unknown being much worse than it turns out to be is a commonplace of human history, actually. And you've had millenarianism, well, over the millennia, but certainly over the centuries, that people suddenly get worried that some terrible thing will happen on a particular date. And the um, various bodies that have suggested the world is about to end have so far been proved wrong, because I don't think it will end on the 3rd of March next year. But the preparations, as I say, are a question of the competence of the government, and that if the government is competent, then project fear is an irrelevance. Because the government will be able to have things in place that ensure that there aren't these major problems. Let's just explore the Millennium Bug analogy just for a little moment, because I can remember this very well. All these things that computers were going to crash, systems wouldn't work, and in the fact it didn't happen. But there were reasons for that, because there was a lot of preparation. There was years and millions, billions spent preparing computer systems for the Millennium so they didn't fall over. No, but I don't think that's quite right, because lots of people didn't. And they found that their computers still worked. But so it, the money wasn't well spent. Lots of older computers still worked the next day. There wasn't this great crash. Well, either way, you were right that there was no great crash on that moment. No. But in this situation, isn't it the EU that has the computers, though? Because, as you said, we can prepare ours in this analogy, but we can't prepare theirs. Yes, that's absolutely right. We can't force the EU to do something if it doesn't want to. But this goes back to your view that the EU is an iniquitous organisation. A rules-based club. No, iniquitous organisation, like the mafia. You're suggesting it's a mafia organisation that wants to kneecap us. If you really think that, why do you ever want to belong to it in the first place? You should have been joining me on the Brexit campaign. I actually think the EU is more rational than that and will behave in a way that meets its own interest. What do you think about the idea that's doing the round in Conservative circles that if the Czechist proposals fall apart, that we end up going to the EEA as a car park. And people like Michael Gove have been raising this as an idea. What would you think about that? Well, I think it's a mistake for a number of reasons. First of all, it leaves you as a rule taker. So it's basically Czechist. So you're saying class. concerns with Czechers, uh, yes. It leaves you with free movement. The only country that doesn't have free movement is Liechtenstein, and that has an exemption because it's so small. It's not an exemption that's likely to be available to the United Kingdom. And the EFTA court, as a matter of its own jurisprudence, 
wishes to remain as close as possible to the ECJ. And therefore, you are de facto under the ECJ, you have effectively freedom of movement, and you're a rule taker. You're also not necessarily in the customs union. And if you look at friction on the border... the only In Ireland. Anywhere. The only countries that have no friction at the border are both in the single market and in the customs union. There is friction between Norway and Sweden, and there's a great deal of friction between Turkey and the EU. And so you have to be in both to avoid any friction. And that means, lo and behold, you're in the European Union. So I don't actually think this works on a practical level, but it also doesn't achieve Brexit. And the other thing to bear in mind is that the EEA is there as a waiting room to enter the European Union, not as the departure lounge before you leave. I think it's better to leave cleanly and be out of it. So for once, I don't agree with Michael. Let's talk about Jacob Rees-Mogg for a moment. What do you hope to achieve in your political career? You've been in Parliament now for eight years and you've turned North East Somerset to a pretty safe Conservative seat from being marginal now. So you've been focused on Brexit. You've mentioned domestic reform. Then you've talked a lot about house building as well. What comes next once we've left the EU? Well, first of all, I don't think any seat any longer can be viewed as safe. I think all seats are basically marginal. We saw that actually a bit in last year's general election when you take seats like Canterbury, for example. That's right. Seats that have been Conservative almost as long as they'd existed, suddenly changing hands. And you look at the Scottish result in both 2015 and in 2017, with a large turnover of seats, and seats that were thought to be absolutely safe. So what's your, what, so what's your secret? There isn't one. Whenever somebody thinks they've got the secret for winning elections, they end up losing the next election. And so there's no secret. All MPs have to do their job in their constituency, which is a very important and rewarding part of an MP's work that sometimes an MP's intervention can help make somebody's life much better and so constituency surgeries and so on are invaluable. But on the broader political issues, of course the key ambition has to be that Brexit is delivered properly and that we have left the European Union thoroughly and completely and that we're not, to quote Mrs May's speech from Lancaster House, half in and half out, which at that point was something that she was against. And I would encourage her to go back to being against that. But once Brexit is delivered, the Conservative Party has to get on to domestic policy, which I think has lacked attention, as you pointed out in your excellent piece a few days ago in the Financial Times, that domestic policy has been a bit left behind. And therefore, the government has to think about what its objective is. And here, I think the basic objective for any conservative government was set out by Benjamin Disraeli. And it's about improving the condition of the people. He was accused of being the minister for sewage. And when he was accused of that, he said, well, that may be right. But by doing that, I'm saving people's lives. And he took it as a compliment rather than an insult. And I think that's important, that conservatives have to be very focused on doing things that help people lead the lives they want to lead and have more successful and prosperous lives. I think the biggest challenge facing us at the moment is housing. The housing market has problems. It's very expensive. Mobility has declined. We need to build more houses. We need to build houses that people want rather than that architects think are good for them. And that means a difficult conversation with our own supporters about where we build on green fields. 
And it's going to be primarily green fields rather than green belt, but there's going to be some element of green belt as well, because not all green belt land is area of outstanding natural beauty. Some of it's not very good quality land that was made green belt for a different purpose decades ago. That's quite an interesting point, because you're a rural conservative MP, and traditionally you would represent the parts of the country, the areas that just don't want to build at all. And I can remember when Mr Cameron's government was trying to increase building, that there were a lot of MPs for this part of the world who were very much against that. What's changed there? What has changed? First of all, we gave a very clear commitment in the 2010 election about how we would approach building. And I think it's always important that politicians stick to their election promises. What has changed... I think partly the opposition in 2010 was to regional structures that were going to impose building targets. And I think it's better to allow these things to emerge in two directions. One is from local decision making, and the other is from a change in the national overview. I don't think the Town and Country Planning Act 1947, the plan and provide approach, is a good one. And I don't think it provides people with the houses that they want. If you look at surveys of public opinion going back to the 1940s, about 80% of people say they want a house with a garden, and 3% of people say they want tower blocks. And actually, public policy was to build tower blocks, not houses with gardens. I think we need to go back to building houses with gardens, and we ought to allow the market to determine what those houses look like, rather than planners insisting on a uniform approach. We also want to make it easier to build small-scale schemes, and we want lower density. The Council for the Protection of Rural England has criticised low-density building. But I think they're fundamentally wrong that low-density building maintains the character of rural England without turning villages into suburbs, whereas high-density building just creates urban sprawl. And I think most villages across the country could take 10, 20, 30, 40, perhaps 50 houses without changing their character if the density is low and if they're not all put in one place. But councils don't like that because they're only interested in big schemes and that means the big house builders and that's where you need the national legislation to change so that it's actually easier for people to get the permissions and less expensive. Let's cast your mind back 20 years to when you first ran for Parliament in 1997, which an awful lot has been written about. How was that experience? You were running in Fife in Scotland. What did you learn from that? I learned a great deal from standing in Fife. As a candidate in a seat that it is almost impossible to win, you have time. When you're a candidate in a marginal seat, you've always got people trying to persuade you to go on to the next door house and so on and so forth. It's not true when you're fighting a seat that is safely held by another party. And therefore I had time to talk to people, to listen to what they had to say, and to learn about the difference between clever policies developed in Whitehall and their effect on people's lives, And therefore, it was a highly educational experience. I learned a great deal from people of Central Fife who were very kind towards me. Uh, They didn't have any intention of voting for me, but they were very generous with their time, with their experiences, and were willing to tolerate somebody from England, from Somerset, and a Conservative being in their midst. Indeed, many of them said to me, we didn't know the Conservatives usually stood here. So you can tell that it was a bit of an uphill battle. 
One of the things that politicians get criticised for is shaping, bending their characteristics, bending their policies to the will of the time. I think that's the one thing nobody could ever accuse you of doing. You very much, you've got your views, you've got your perspective, and you stick to them. And this obviously became particularly potent during last summer when we had the rise and fall of Mogmentum. Or maybe the rise, maybe it's still going to rise. Do you think there is this authenticity question about politicians generally? Well... I think most politicians are more authentic than they're given credit for. Most have an idea of what they want to do. Perhaps too many of them do media training, which trains them basically not to answer questions, and that by and large it's better to answer questions than not to. You've also become a big advocate of social media as well. What persuaded you to join Instagram, where you've got a tremendous following there? Well, I don't know that I'm a great advocate of it, but it's there and it's a political tool and one has to use it. And Instagram is absolutely charming. I, I like uh, using Instagram. It's a very friendly space. A lot of MPs I've heard said that compared to Facebook or Twitter. Most people on Instagram seem to have a kindly world view and see the best in people rather than the worst in people. So I think Instagram is a very good form of social media. And I think as a, as a politician, if you were operating in the 19th century, you'd be putting out handbills. Um, in the 1950s, you had to work out what to do on television. And here we are in 2018, and you have to use social media. And that's how it is. And you've obviously got off the back of that a public persona, which is different to some of your colleagues. Is that a persona that sort of developed naturally? Or is it something that maybe you play to a bit? Well, we're all individuals. We all have the persona that we have. And I'm not sure that anybody would develop my characteristics deliberately. I'm not sure (laughs) it would be a clever political scheme. Well, it worked for you in north-east Somerset. You've got to bear in mind that I was going with the national swing as well. I think MPs can often come to the view that all the votes they get are personal votes. And by and large, they're not. Most people vote for a political party rather than for the individual candidate. Perhaps members of my immediate family vote for me because uh, of who I am rather than because I'm a Conservative. Now, let's look ahead. So we've talked quite a lot about checkers, and you've been very clear to say that it's not Mrs May you have a problem with, it's her policy. My perspective is those two are now intertwined with each other, and there is no sense that Mrs May is either willing or able to drop the checkers' proposals Would your view on Mrs May change if she continues to push this through? Well, she's changed her mind before, and we've seen this in the move from Mansion House to Chequers. That's a big change, and therefore it can be changed again. Obviously, that follows. But if she puts the Chequers proposals to a vote in the House of Commons, I will vote against them. So let's say we hear some good vibes from the EU off the back of this, and it looks as if they can begin to strike a deal along the lines that she outlined, and that deal comes before the House of Commons, you wouldn't vote for it. And I imagine there's another 20 or 30 Conservative MPs who would feel the same way as well. What if it passes through the House of Commons with Labour votes? Because we know that the Conservative Party whips have been talking to Labour MPs, and that is clearly part of their strategy. That would be a very dangerous policy for the whips to follow. The most divisive thing for a party is to push through a policy which is opposed by a large number of your supporters on the back of opposition votes. It is the most divisive thing to do, and I wouldn't have thought it was in the interests of the leadership of the party to be so divisive. So you're saying if she does that, that might endanger her leadership? No, I'm saying it would be a very divisive thing to do, and I can't believe she would be so unwise as to do it. But if you take same-sex marriage, for example, or even when we joined the EEC... It was a free vote. 
Uh, but when we joined the EEC back in the 1970s, that only passed thanks to the Roy Jenkins lump of 90 MPs. Right. You're absolutely right. And that has meant that the EU has remained a divisive issue within the Tory party ever since. It has not done it as any good as a party. And it led to um, Ted Heath being unceremoniously chucked out a few years later. It's not a clever thing for a leader of a party to do. Would you try and preempt her doing that? If that is a strategy, which I think it possibly is, what would you want to do to stop it? Well, I would vote against this policy when it comes to the House of Commons, and I think there are the votes to do that. You said when you sat down with the FT for lunch with my colleague, uh, George Parker, that Mrs May is absolutely brilliant and would do a fabulous job. Has your opinion changed since then? She's absolutely brilliant, and I hope she will do a more fabulous job than she's currently doing. Indeed. It does strike me, though, that we could find ourselves in quite a dangerous situation in the autumn. If Mrs May strikes this deal, it's signed off from the EU side, goes through the European Parliament, but it can't pass the British Parliament. What happens then? Well, the Prime Minister's job is to get something that can command the confidence of the House of Commons. That's what she's there to do. But if we find ourselves in this situation, this is where we would stare down the barrel of a WTO no-deal Brexit. If there is a deal, but it doesn't pass through the House of Commons. WTO departure from the European Union is a very good departure from the European Union. It saves us £39 billion, which we can devote to public services or tax cuts. It gives us the opportunity to govern ourselves sooner rather than later. There are deals that could be better than WTO, but WTO is a good deal. What if Mrs May decided, I've got this deal, I can't get it through this parliament, so I'm going to have to get another parliament, and she decides to go to the country, manages to get a confidence vote view. I know we're into hypotheticals, but this could very much happen. What would you do then? Because the Conservative Party policy would be Mrs May's deal. And that's a deal you've said that you couldn't support. Now, the burnt fool's bandaged finger goes wobbling back to the fire. It is inconceivable, I would have thought, that after the last general election result, that the Prime Minister, who is no fool, would take the same risk a second time. This seems the most unlikely hypothetical that you could propose. I think most people think an election in before we leave Brexit is certainly a possibility because it's very hard to see what Brexit deal you can get through the House of Commons. How? Well, obviously, you can try and call a confidence vote in the House of Commons and you're saying Conservative MPs wouldn't vote for that. Labour MPs might. In a vote of confidence, the Prime Minister would win under the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act. So... Look, I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding. A lot of people haven't studied the Fixed-Term Parliament Act carefully enough to see how you get to a general election. People still seem to think that the Prime Minister says, this is a vote of confidence, Prime Minister doesn't win, and therefore goes to the palace and asks for a dissolution. That no longer happens. Only two ways of having a dissolution. One, if the Prime Minister loses a vote of confidence according to the specific wording of the Fixed Term Parliament Act. And your confidence she would not lose that. I think the explanation needs to be complete. That vote could come the day after a vote has been lost on the European deal and the Prime Minister would win that. Every Conservative MP would back the Conservative government in a vote of confidence. The second way is if two-thirds of all MPs, not just MPs present, all MPs vote for an early general election. Now, that's a motion that the government would have to move, and it would have to be supported by Conservative backbenchers. 
This, frankly, seems extremely unlikely in these circumstances that Conservatives in marginal seats would be willing to risk a general election under these almost kamikaze circumstances. The Prime Minister is far too intelligent to take this risk, which wouldn't work anyway. So the government and parliament will remain through this period. There is not a a method of getting to an early general election under any ordinary circumstances. On a totally different idea, what if this momentum for a people's vote, which has been building, is still limited, but it's building, and the government decided to throw us into a, another referendum? How well, would you feel about that? Vote, and the Financial Times another, lost. Well, the Remain campaign lost. Well, led by the Financial Times. <laughs> uh, I don't think uh, you could blame the Financial Times exactly for Brexit. Well, I, no, no, I wouldn't blame you for Brexit, because I don't think blame is the right word. Brexit is a great triumph of the national spirit and of confidence in the future but what, what of the if country. But what if this happens, that another referendum? Had, we have had three votes on this already. We had the general election in 2015, which promised a referendum. We had the referendum and then a general election when both the Labour Party and the Conservative Party said they would honour the result of the referendum. We've had a poll in the Daily Mail saying that 75% of people want us to get on with it. There's no second referendum. There's no people's vote. It is Ramona's who want to stop Brexit. And most people understand that, that it's not about the people's choice, it's about reversing the people's choice. It's about people who lost trying to change the rules. And it's bogus, and it'll be seen through as being bogus. And finally, Jay, what's next for you? So you're obviously you've been very much engaged with the debate over Brexit. Once that passes, you know, you ran for the Treasury Select Committee. Do you think you might run for that again? Run for a Select Committee, possibly? No, I'm very happy with what I'm doing. But what about a ministerial position? I'm very happy representing North East Somerset. Even in 10 years' time, some people see you as a future Speaker of the House of Commons. You've got a relatively safe seat, you know, 10 years' time. Could that be something you would fancy? I'll go back to what I said on a safe seat. Being Speaker is a wonderful role, but you have to take yourself out of day-to-day political controversy. As we've just been discussing over the last half hour, I find political controversy enormously interesting, and I'm not sure I could take a sufficiently Trappist vow on these subjects. Even in the future? Well, the future is a very long time, but I think I find political controversy too exciting and would find it too difficult to be sufficiently quiet. But in an abstract sense, being Speaker is a wonderful role, a very important constitutional role, which John Burko has carried out really extraordinarily well to raise the importance of the House of Commons. And crucially, he always backs the legislature against the executive. And that is key part of his duty and I'm a great supporter of his because of that. Well, maybe Even I'm... if I disagree with him over things like Whigs, which he knows perfectly well, but he's been a real champion for the House of Commons. Maybe a model to follow. Very few quickfire questions before we finish. Have you ever owned a pair of double-breasted pyjamas? Is this an urban legend? Oh, I wish I did. If there is a pyjama manufacturer who listens into this who would be able to make a pair of double-breasted pyjamas, I should be his customer. But I don't think such things are available. Would you ever lose faith in Brexit? No, self-government is popular all around the world. The European Union is the abnormality, whereas self-government is completely normal and is how most successful countries operate. Would you ever lose faith in the Conservative Party? Ah, well, that depends on what you think of the Conservative Party being. I think the Conservative Party is my party, not somebody else's, and therefore I'm a Conservative at Tory to my fingertips. And if you were in government for one day, what would be the one thing you would do? I'm not going to be in government for one day. The world doesn't work like that. 
Oh, thank you very much, and that's it for this special episode of FT Politics. Jacob, thank you very much for finding the time to speak to us. We'll be back next week for another special guest. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Anna Dedder. Until next time, thank you for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.